Well, how's everybody doing? Good. My name is Josh. I'm on the teaching team. I get to preach this morning. Uh, I also get to oversee Next Gen, and it's a fun morning. Baptisms is always a great morning. So I'm excited about preaching. I love my job. I actually woke up early this morning, so excited before the alarm, 4:30, and I'm just excited to teach. Even this Old Testament thing that may seem old, but there's another reason why I'm particularly excited this morning. And the only thing I can equate it to is a sports thing. So if you're not a sports person, sorry, but it's like throwing a no hitter. So. Those of you who don't know, baseball, no hitter, the pitcher throws the entire game and the other team never gets a hit. So what I've done in my message here is I've thrown essentially a no hitter. And let me explain. I prepare, I go to the text, I chew on it, I ask God to show us what he's trying to show us through this word and then I start to piece it together. And as I was piecing it together, I started to notice a trend. And in a no hitter, you don't get excited about it until like the sixth inning, the seventh inning. You're like, oh my, this might happen. Eighth inning, you're in the ninth inning, you lose it. Like, this is happening. So I had five points, and I realized my first two, then my third, all starting with the same letter. And I realized I'm about to throw a no hitter. Every point I have starts with the same letter. And I just, you might not be excited about it, but I'm excited because that doesn't happen. That's never the goal. I was just getting up there trying to be faithful, throwing pitches. And what I have is a sermon with five points, all with the same letter. So you are welcome, those of you that love alliteration. But it's a serious passage. What Bruce just read is actually the end of it. It's my job to teach Exodus 21, 22, 23, and 24, basically Old Testament law. And here's kind of a question that a lot of people have. Should we still follow the law of God in the Old Testament? And everybody wants an answer to that because the most skeptical of atheists who want to knock Christianity down, one of the ways they think they can push the domino that topples our house of faith is you guys seem inconsistent because there's a lot of rules in here. There's a ton of laws. There's hundreds of laws throughout this book. And they say, you guys cherry pick which ones you actually want to choose to camp out on and then you leave the other ones. So you pick out the ones about sexuality, but you leave the ones about how a female should dress. Are they onto something? Are we just cherry picking? The answer is no, because they're asking the wrong question. This is an unfolding story, and God our Father is speaking to our ancestors in different times, speaking specifically into their context. So here's a better question to ask when we get to this Old Testament law. Should we still be shaped by the law of the God, by the law of God in the Old Testament? As we look at our ancestors and how God dealt with them in their context, should we still be shaped by it? And the answer is absolutely yes. And that's what the sermon's hoping to answer. The five reasons why we should still be shaped by the Old Testament. Here's the kind of big idea that holds us all together. The law of God is still binding. It still matters for the shaping, not the saving of God's people. So a lot of, if you're to go, I'm not going to go through all this, it's going to take too much time, but if you're going to read the law, some of them seem so far out there, you're like, how does this ever apply? It applies because we should still be shaped by this law. God does not expect us tit for tat, dotting all the T, all the I's, crossing every T that we follow this exactly, but it's the shaping of God's word that I want to happen this morning. So that's what we're asking God to do. Would you pray with me and ask him to be here in this moment? Father, you are the wise one, the all-loving one, the all-powerful one. You gave us your word to shape us, so that's what I ask happens this morning. Shape us by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what I'm going to do, just so you can track and you don't get too bogged down, I'm going to kind of look at a particular law 
uh, and then talk about each point I have. So what I want you to do is flip back to Exodus 21, and we're just going to set the context here. So Luke taught last week 10 commandments. Those are the baseline, the 10 words. That's the foundation of faith. And now God, through Moses, is now shaping the judicial system. Here's how you people should treat each other as my representatives on this earth. And where do I see that? Chapter 21, verse 1 says this. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And what we see to follow is like 50 or so laws covering every aspect of life. Everything from animal care to treating the unborn. Like everything you can think of, God starts to answer in this. And again, we want to be shaped by this. We don't want to take this as the checklist we must follow for God to be happy with us. We want to be shaped. So here's the first thing I see as I read through all these laws. This is why we should be shaped. First reason is God's priorities start at the bottom. And what do I mean by that? We have our Bibles there to 21. I want to start reading in verse 2 there. And this is the, f- the first thing out of God's mouth to shape his people. Verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And then the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. See that if he acquired a family while under slavery, they're still the masters. Keep reading. Verse five, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be a slave forever. This is interesting. God could have started anywhere when directing social activity of his people. And the first thing he speaks into is the bottom of society. Now, there's a lot to be said about slavery and justification people in this country had using the Bible. Just a very quick 30-second spiel. This is different than slavery that has happened in this country and different than the slavery that Israel came from. That was like an ethnic oppression of one ethnicity over another that was all of society. This is more of an economic, I'm in debt, I sell myself into your service, I'm now your servant, I am your slave. It's not what we experience here. It's still not anything any of us would want, but it's a different sort of slavery. But here's the fact. These folks were at the bottom, and God speaks to the people and says, here's how you treat the bottom. And it's the first thing out of his mouth. How do you know somebody's priorities? I love having kids that are still like naive. My kids are kind of naive and innocent still, and I like to ask them questions about different people. Like, what do you think this person's all about? And they just have gut flinch answers based off of what they experience. Ah, she seems like she really cares about how she looks. Oh, why do you think that? And they say, because I noticed this. Or this guy seems like he cares a lot about money. Why? How do you know what somebody cares about? Prioritizes. Here's two ways. What do they talk about first? And what do they talk about a lot? And that's what we get to see as God unpacks his law. What does he talk about first? What does he talk about a lot? We're at the dinner table the other night, and I want to do a little experiment with my kids. I said, if your mom could snap her fingers and change one thing about your dad. (laughs) Scary. What would she change? And all of them, without hesitation, said the same exact thing, which tells me she talks about it first and she talks about it a lot. They said that he would be a better driver. 
As we look at this, if God could snap his fingers and change one thing about us, I think he wants us to know that his priorities start at the bottom. The bottom of society. Why? Because when we get to the top, we forget about those below us. It's just human nature. So he starts at the bottom. Jesus tells us this. Here's what life is about. You should love God with everything and you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. I picture that as the title of the book of our life. Now, what are the individual chapters? I think the chapters are what God's priorities are. We should love the poor. We should love the outsider, the foreigner. As you look through this, these four chapters, I'm not going to go through all of them, but here's who God prioritizes. He talks about these people a lot. The slave. And he doesn't just stop at slave. He also delineates and says the female slave who was at the mercy of a male-dominated culture. Here's how you should treat them. The unborn. In chapter, why don't you look here, because this is important just in our cultural moment. Go to Exodus 21, verse 22. In 23, Exodus 21, we're going to look at verse 22 and 23. God, before there's ultrasounds and sonograms and medical world to tell us what's going on inside, is thinking about the unborn. It says this, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. So the husband gets to pick a fine, and he shall pay as the, judges, the judge determines. But if there is harm to the unborn child, then you shall pay life for life. God cares about the bottom of society. He talks about the sojourner. And here's another interesting thing which warms my heart because I love the outdoors. I love plants. I love trees. He talks about animal care throughout this section. Why? Because God is the God over all, and he doesn't just care about the powerful elite, no matter what some people may say. He cares about the bottom. He prioritizes those at the bottom. Our Savior, Jesus, was born into the non-dominant culture in a poor rural setting to an unwed mother. Even how God shows up on the scene shows his heart. I had a seminary professor ask this question one time, and it was it's just interesting. I chewed on it for a while, but he said, is it theologically important that Jesus was poor and marginalized? Meaning, could Jesus have come in as a rich king and the same results would happen? And he just let us chew on it for a while. And his answer was no, because the way our society works, the top neglects the bottom. So if God's going to impact everyone, he has to come in to the bottom and impact the world through being a poor marginalized outsider. God cares about the bottom. And I'll just say this pastorally, I think this is a huge area of growth for our place, our church. There's nothing like particular I'd point to and say this, this, just in general, we are not the bottom. Our lives are pretty good, pretty cush. And when God calls us to look at the poor, the outsider, the slave, the female slave, the marginalized, the unborn, the foreigner, the immigrant. We just, most of us sit up here and we need to be shaped by God's eyes for the bottom. So that's the first thing I think shapes us with the law of God. Here's the next one. God's protection of the vulnerable is fierce 
and impartial. What do I mean by that? If you read through, again, if you want to, go read through these. It's interesting. There's a lot of different things covered. But this is kind of how it works. God gives a law. Here's a social situation. Here's how a law is broken. And here's the punishment. Here's how you should punish this. And every time it's, uh, you trip a donkey, you should be tripped. That's not one of those. Don't go write that down as that's a verse. But this is how you treat a donkey. Here's what should happen to you. And every single time, God puts the ownership into our hands, the people of God, Israel, to enact this. Here's how you enact this law. Here's how you punish me. With one exception. There's one time in this section where God inserts himself and says, I'll handle this. It's just interesting. So I want to look at that verse. Go to Exodus 22. Who does God jump in the mix for and step up and protect? Exodus 22, we're going to look at verse 21 through 24. says this, you shall not wrong a sojourner, outsider, or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, then they cry out to me. I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wife shall become widows and children fatherless. That is intense. That's when mom calls dad because you ain't listening to mom. And dad steps in and he says, if you mistreat widows and orphans, I will kill you. Quotation, God. Well, let's look at Jesus. He's a little, he's a little softer with his words sometimes. If it would be better for you to be drowned at the bottom of the ocean than for you to be born and to ever harm one of my little children. Quotation marks, Jesus. That is fierce. God cares about the vulnerable, so much so that he has to insert himself into the equation sometimes because we do such a poor job, we don't have them on our radar. So what do we take from this? How do we help protect the vulnerable? I got a few things. We stay involved in the foster care and adoption world. And here's the reality. If you're not involved, it's hard. And some of you that are involved just need to hear this. There's no getting around how difficult it is. But here's my encouragement. As I read the word of God, your heart is lined up with the heart of God. You have chosen a harder path. If we try to put all together, make sense of it, it's not necessarily going to get easier. But your heart lines up with the heart of God. And that's a beautiful thing to grab hold of. And sometimes that's all you have. I'm doing this because this is the heart of my Father in heaven. We stay involved in the foster care and adoption world. Here's the other one. We look to serve widows in our church. We have a growing population of widows. We look to serve widows because God says care for the widow. It lines up with the heart of God. One practical thing, here's how I do it come voting season. As I think about candidates, propositions, school boards, all that sort of stuff, I always, one of my filters is, how does this affect the vulnerable? And it's more than just the unborn, although that's a piece of it. And if I don't know, I'll call friends who are on school boards and things and say, how does this affect this demographic? How does this, because what I care about is not my paycheck at the end of the day if I want to be in line with God. I need to have the vulnerable on my radar. How does this affect them? And again, that's not an easy answer. You got to wrestle with that. 
But that's what we can do as a church. Here's what I love about reading through with this, is God's anger is fierce, but it's a better anger than I have. Because as a dad, I often fly off the handle in the name of righteous anger. And God's not like that. He doesn't let us just fly off and then respond to that. And he keeps some restrictions in here. I want to go to Exodus 23. He knows human nature. He knows we respond out of emotion. He knows we kind of lose it sometimes. And he knows even in our desire to help the marginalized, there's something he wants to protect against. And it's impartiality. So go to chapter 23, verse 1. And this was just fascinating. I didn't expect it. It kind of caught me off guard, but I loved it. Verse one, we're going to read a couple verses through verse three. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in a lawsuit. Isn't that interesting? He is fiercely committed to the marginalized, but he will not do it at the sake of justice. He says, you don't side with the crowd because that's who's yelling, and you don't side with the poor person just because they're poor. You side with justice. Like, if that doesn't preach to this moment, I don't know what will, because we live in the dumbest time ever to be a human. (laughs) All of us get our news fourth and fifth hand from some social media lunatic and we're fired up with the masses and we're often defending the marginalized, the poor, the females with no facts behind any of it. And God says, you fiercely protect the marginalized, but don't be an idiot. My translation And that's just hard to walk this day and age. Nobody functions like this. We all just want to... So here's what I learned from that. Christians should walk towards the marginalized with a fierceness, but also a slowness as we gather facts. Here's how it plays out in my house. I've got boys. The third boy gets beat up a lot, and he screams, and he sounds like a gutted pig, just... It's a terrible noise. So I run in there every time and I'm ready to kill Elijah because he's screaming, Elijah! And here's what I've come to realize. The volume of his scream rarely matches the offense that Elijah did. (laughs) And God's saying, that's the culture we live in. He even warned back then. How much more now with a bunch of knuckleheads with smartphones who listen to everything? Just because the gutted pig is yelling doesn't mean you need to respond with the same sort of intensity but you protect the poor and the marginalized because that's my heart. Here's the next thing we see. God's punishment is severe, yet it's fair. Here's the two things I see. God punishes sin, which wasn't that surprising to me, but here's the other thing. God doesn't over punish sin. So I want you to go to Exodus 21, verse 16. And again, this is just an example of one of the laws that comes with the punishment. 21, verse 16. And this is talking about kidnapping, which is good. We should have laws about that. Whoever steals, 21 verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, 
And anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So the kidnapper or the person who bought them, if they do this, they should be put to death. What did we learn? God punishes sin. In this, te- in this way, he punishes Israel as his king over this as a nation. We live in the church age now. We are American citizens living in the church. We don't get the same sort of punishment. We don't get to use capital punishment and point to the Old Testament like our Muslim friends and say, well, that's what it says. The government provides the laws. We want Christian values to speak into that, but it's a little different. But the fact is, God absolutely punishes sin. If you fast forward to the New Testament, the way he punishes in the New Testament, in the church context, the most extreme form of punishment is this, removal from the church family for unrepentant, ongoing sin that someone refuses to own. We don't kill people like Israel was told to because we're a different functioning organization. But God absolutely punishes sin. But here's the thing that fascinated me. God does not over punish sin. I want you to go to Exodus uh, 21, verse 23. This is the tail end of that talking about unborn. So Exodus 21, verse 23. Again, in the context of if there's a pregnant woman hurt, her or her unborn child. But if there is harm... Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, I've always heard eye for eye, tooth for tooth as like rah-rah to God's justice and his fierceness and his wrath on sin. And it is that. But embedded in what he's saying is he also has constraints. He doesn't want retaliation upon retaliation upon retaliation. Like some of us have vindictive friends or family members, like they're never going to let it go. They're just going to keep punishing over and over. And God says, here's how you punish. If it's an eye, give an eye. If it's a burn, give a burn. That was just comforting for my heart. Because here's one of the things I wrestle with God. One of many, but the idea of hell, which I believe to be true, Taught in the scriptures, there is an eternal punishment awaiting those who reject Jesus and live life apart from him. And you kind of wrestle like, ah. And just for sake of simplicity, there's kind of two ways to come out these sticky situations. Oversimplified, but here. You can overly trust yourself and kind of have God on trial as you walk through it. Like my discernment, my wisdom, my sense of right and wrong is what's right. It's God that I'm going to see if he lines up with me. Or you can say, I've probably got blind spots. I'm going to put myself on trial. I'm going to elevate and assume the best of God as I walk through this. So as I think about punishment, God absolutely punishes, but he doesn't overpunish. So as I think about hell, which is really heavy and just doesn't sit well, I can put God on trial and say, you make sense to my Western modern brain. Or I can say, God, from your very beginning, you've never overpunished. You even wrote it into this code that we shouldn't overpunish. Your punishment is precise, it's intentional, it makes sense for the crime. I trust you. Now, that doesn't, it's still difficult, but God does not overpunish. We must remember that. Next one is this. This one kind of came out of the blue for me. But it had a P on it, so I was excited. Here's the fourth one. God's plan 
has always, always included our calendars. You're like, where did that come from? We're just talking about punishment and hell. Well, that's what God writes in here. So if you have your Bibles, Exodus 23, go to verse 10. Again, we're talking about how to treat goats, how to treat the slaves, how does social life work, and then in the middle of it, God kind of jumps into, here's how I want your calendar to look. Go to Exodus 23, verse 10. We're going to read a couple verses. He says, for six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie follow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. God's speaking a rule, a law into how our calendar looks. Go ahead to verse 14 there. And then he says, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. And then he spends the rest of that section unpacking those feasts. You see what God's doing there? He's saying, okay, morality out there, that's what I want, but also bring your calendars to me. Here's how I want your calendars to look. Block off this day. Like, ah, that's when I go to Cabo. Like, block off this day. It's like, we don't like that. Nobody tells us what to do. Nobody tells us how to spend our time. I'm captain of this domain. I will choose how. And God's saying, this is how your calendar should look. I'll just tell you where it hit home for me, convicted me. This was like a year ago. I'm just kind of chewing on thoughts, kind of praying about Sabbath. And I had the thought, my boys, when they get to be 20, 25, 30, and someone asked them, what is Sabbath? I just realized they had no answer based off the home life and rhythm I was creating. And you can say, well, don't be, don't be legalistic. No, take it easy on yourself. And then I go to God's word and he's like, oh, by the way, do the Sabbath. Next page. Make sure you do the Sabbath. Do, like you can't avoid this. God says, here's what your calendar should look like. And again, you, I could see like, uh, who's this guy telling me what to do? Like we don't want to be told what to do. Why? Because we want to be in control. My wife just went to her annual physical to make sure she's healthy. The doctor, if the doctor tells her in that moment, you need to drink more water, does she storm out of there and run home to me? Do you want to know what that, you know what, told me? He told me to drink more water. What a legalist. Nobody responds like that. Why? Because we assume water is good for our soul and our body and our health. God created us. He knows what our calendar should look like. And he's saying, this is good for your soul. Jesus calls himself the water that never ends. Well, how do we get this water that never ends? We put our calendars around him. Me, personally, I buck this tradition because I come from like a Catholic background where I was in a church, kind of, but God was far. So whenever I hear anything like that sniffs of tradition or do it this way or this is what the church is saying, it's like, but I've just had to grow up, honestly, and learn the Bible more and realize that God says this is what you should be doing. God should get a hold of our calendars. Here's the way I like to think about this that's most helpful. Think about ruts, like ruts in a road. As you think about your home life, 
your seven-day calendar, your one-day rhythm, your annual calendar? What ruts are you creating for God to be able to speak into that? Is Sunday church attendance a given? Is it blocked off your calendar? And some of you that aren't Christians, you're like, well, this is... I'm telling you what the God who created us knows is best for us. In gathering with his people once a week, he says his best. It's not a, we're taking notes. The pastor's on Monday, check attendance of everyone. All right, who's gonna call Billy? All right, I'll take it. It's God says, stop and be together with God's people. He wants our calendars. He's got a plan for us. And the way he shapes us is through our time. A few questions I wrote. How's your Sunday church attendance? Is it a given? What about your small group? Are you gathering regularly with the smaller group to kind of chew on what God's teaching us? And here's another one, just a daily one. Are you praying every day? Are you creating a rut of every day I go to God in dependency? Again, you could throw the legalism stuff at me all day. That's fine. But if God is the doctor who's saying, drink this, it's good for you. I'm listening because he cares about us and he knows better. And one of the ways he told us to drink this is he built it into the law code for us to be shaped by. So that's that one. So verse chapter 21, 22, 23 are all laws. Random laws, go read them. They're a lot of fun. Chapter 24 now is this. We get to this point where it's, Luke talked about a wedding ceremony last week. It's the the symbol. Okay, what's the symbol that's going to mark this relationship between God and Israel? And that's what Bruce read earlier. We're going to go to chapter 24. Let's look at it. He read the first eight verses there. I'm going to read them. And then we'll see our last point here. Chapter 24, verse 1 says this. Then he said to Moses... All the laws have been said. Come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Most of you can't come, but Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. But the others shall not come up near, and the people shall not come up with him. So we're about to pass the wedding rings. Verse 3. Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I love the confidence because we're all that way. You could be an addict for four decades. How are you going to beat this? I got this. Addicted to pornography. How are you going to beat this? I'm going to be stronger tomorrow. It's human nature. Verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars representing all of Israel, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to go do the work who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Verse 6. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said again, with confidence, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. I love it. My kids always promise, Dad, I'll do better. Three minutes later, I'm in the room. (laughs) Verse 8. What's the ultimate symbol of this covenant that we can be sure of? Verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is beautiful. But in light of the whole story of God, here's what this is. All this is is a picture to the ultimate thing. 
The best illustration I can think is it's an ultrasound of the baby. Seth Trout's about to have his first kid. I can't wait. All he has right now is an ultrasound of that little dude. And maybe he's like, yeah, those are my muscles. That's definitely my kid. <laughs> my first boy, I remember seeing, I'm like, he has Aubrey's mouth. That's the only feature. I'm like, oh, so sweet. And that's all I had. And all Israel had before them with blood being thrown on them and one person standing in the Holy of Holies and the covenant being read, all that was was just an ultrasound. They were just looking at just a tiny glimpse of what God ultimately was going to do. Just an ultrasound. Pretty soon, Seth's going to hold little Junior and he's never going to be the same. And he's going to get to look at him and hold him and that ultrasound is going to be tucked away in some file box and he'll maybe never look at it again. Hebrews says that's what the Christian faith is. There's a section where it talks about this is what Moses was doing and he describes this exact situation. He was throwing blood on the people, reading the covenant. It was this ceremony of this is what we're going to do, I promise. And the thing that was constant was blood. There was blood in the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was and there was blood on the people. What's the thing that can bring together heaven and earth? Sinful humanity and holy, righteous king of heaven, blood. The author of Hebrews says, what happened then was just copies of the heavenly things. That's beautiful language. He says this, but now Christ has entered, in, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he is in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly like Moses had to do. For then we would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. He's like, we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to play that game. That was a copy. And that's how that section ends. As it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. God's provision for our covenant breaking is always blood. Always. In the Old Testament, it was a copy. Now we get the real thing. Seth is going to hold his baby. We get to hold on to Jesus, cherish him for the blood that covered us once for all. Should we be shaped by the law of God? Yes and amen. Are we going to be able to be shaped in a way that proves perfect? Absolutely not. Well, how do we stand in confidence then? Because the blood. Because Jesus has entered once and for all and stands on our behalf now in heaven. That is amazing. That is the gospel. That's the good news. That's what makes Christianity better than any nonsense you can find in the world. Christ, once for all, for the forgiveness of our sins, and now we get to be shaped by his word, which includes these laws. That's beautiful. We have a great God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the blood that is written into your story where we can't avoid it or get around it. We have to do something with the blood. We have to make sense of the blood. And thank you for the story that concludes with the Savior who was pierced in blood and died for our transgressions. And now we as your people stand confident, not because we look at these laws and we can check them off as being done, but because we can look to you as the faithful one and now we get to look to your law as the shaping word of God. So shape us as your people, God. Don't let us get off the hook. Don't let us take your word lightly. Don't let us be trite or trivial with your word. Let us stand with reverence under your word and in confidence in the blood that you shed.
We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.